Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an exercise physiologist discusses the value of strength training for seniors. Strength training doesn't have to be equipment and gyms and there are so many things out there on the internet that can show you things where you need a wall and a chair. A teacher talks about the one-room schoolhouse within the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. School is the normality of children and a lot of times when they come into the schoolroom they find a little comfort. It looks like a schoolroom and I think when they see that they're able to say okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to get back to school soon. And Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers shares his views on fitness and motivation. Practice does not make perfect. You can practice and you cannot and not come to perfection, but perfect practice makes perfect. All that plus a selection from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about a one-room schoolhouse inside of the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Then we'll hear about fitness and motivation from Syracuse University head football coach, Dino Babers. But first, we'll explore why strength training is important for senior citizens. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're exploring the importance of exercise, specifically strength training for older adults with Carol Sames, who is with me in the HealthLink on Air studio. Dr. Sames is an associate professor at Upstate in the College of Health Professions, teaching students in physical therapy and physician assistant studies. She's also the director of the Vitality Fitness Program. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Sames. Thank you so much, Amber. Now let's start by reviewing the fitness guidelines for older adults. And, and by older, do we mean 60s, 50s, 70s? What? Technically over the age of 65. However, okay. you know, you can find individuals that are younger that certainly need Qualify for, for the... older adult okay. guidelines. So what do the guidelines say? How much exercise do we need? So if we look at cardiovascular exercise, the minimum is 150 minutes a week of um, moderate activity or 75 minutes per week of more vigorous activity. We also know that there's a dose effect, so that if you go up to 300 minutes of moderate or 150 minutes of vigorous activity per week, you get even additional health benefits. So more is better. More to, up to, to a, a degree. point, okay. correct, yes. Um, then also um, strengthening um, exercises two times a week. Um, multi-component activity, which is including balance activities, um, is also included. So those are the general guidelines. Now, you said cardiovascular. Is that the same as aerobic? Yes, okay. correct. So what counts as aerobic activities or cardiovascular activities? Anything that's continuous activity. So we have the more traditional activities such as walking. That's usually the number one. Um, we could say biking or swimming or water aerobics. Um, all the different kind of, when you go to a, maybe a healthcare facility, a gym, you see all these different types of equipment. Um, but then it could also be things like dancing or gardening or mowing the lawn, but not on your John Deere. Um, you know, things that are more continuous. So it doesn't have to be traditional types of exercise. Cleaning the house, I don't really like to do it, but if it's continuous, that can count as cardiovascular. Vacuuming, or, or, as long yes, as you're moving. Right, continuous movement. So with the guidelines that you gave us, um, is it do you do it all in one day or do you spread it out throughout the week or does, does it matter? It does actually matter. We don't want people to be what we call weekend warriors. Um, spread out uh, over a minimum of three days per week, but actually it's preferable as we get older for more days per week, so five days per week. Um, we don't, really the guidelines are stressing the absolute importance of reducing sedentary behavior, which we know is on the rise. Now, you mentioned walking, and, you know, some people may not think of that as exercise. Is there a benefit if you're a walker? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, it is really the number one aerobic activity. If you think about it, most of us get around by walking. Um, it's easy. Even if uh, uh, 
I, I can't go outside, say it's pouring rain, I don't want to walk outside. I could walk where I live, I could walk laps. So walking really translates well to what we do in, in everyday life. And also it's fairly inexpensive, we don't need a lot of space. Um, it's convenient. Um, we might have to be flexible depending on the weather, but um, you get great benefits from walking. Get a nice pair of shoes, comfortable pair of shoes, and you're kind of set. Yes. Okay. Now, why is strength training sort of carved out in these guidelines? It's also mentioned. Why is that set aside like that? It's actually been in the guidelines for a number of years, but um, aerobic or cardiovascular exercise has kind of gotten the top bill because we associate it with the reduction in the risk of cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke. Um, however, if you think about the body, we need muscle to move. And so if I do want to walk, I do have to have a certain amount of strength um, in my core and, and lower extremities in order to walk. And so strengthening is extraordinarily important and it becomes even more important as we get older because there are some physiological processes where we do start to lose some muscle but um, it's so important to do strength training and again we really want to emphasize that as we move into adulthood and an older adulthood. So when you say strength training, it makes me think of weightlifting. Is that is that pretty much it? Well, that could be a form that you could take, but it could also be body weight exercises. So I'm doing push-ups against the wall, or if I'm strong enough on the ground or on my knees, I'm doing mini squats against the wall. I use TheraBands or TheraTubes, or some forms of yoga uh, also are, are strength training. Um, I might want to, if I'm a walker, walk hills, um, uphill and downhill, and that's a form of strength training. Um, I could use stairs um, that could also be strength training. I could do multiple sits to stands out of a chair if um, I'm a little bit more deconditioned, and that could be strength training. So strength training doesn't have to be equipment and gyms and there, there are so many things out there on the internet that can show you things where you need a wall and a chair and you don't really need anything else. So talk to me about some aerobic activities that also strengthen muscles. Okay. Are there some? Well certainly if you're really deconditioned, if we have somebody who really um, maybe they're coming off of surgery or an injury or they just really haven't participated in consistent exercise, um, just, just doing cardiorespiratory activity could be strength training for them. But one of the uh, things that, that we like to do in Vitality or that can be done is circuit training where we might do something that's cardiovascular. So we might have somebody walk for X number of minutes and then that's followed by um, some upper body strengthening and then we do some lower body strengthening and then we go back to walking for a few minutes so it's set up as a circuit also some types of yoga can be both strengthening and if it's continuous cardiovascular okay now where does balance training fit into all of this because I've heard that's particularly important for seniors too correct and that's that multi-component um type of exercise that is listed in the guidelines. So balance training can be a combination of strengthening and specific balance activities. Um, you, you can make that also multidimensional and, and throw that into your aerobic fitness. We know that as individuals get older, there's a risk for falls. And so strength is very important in reduction of falls. Fitness or um, endurance activities are also important. So I could do things where I'm walking and then I stop and I do some tightrope walking or I do some marching where I'm standing on one leg. Now, of course, it would all be dependent on me personally and, and where I'm at. I might want to do that up against a wall if I felt that my balance, I was concerned about my balance. But balance activities are very important. And we like to stress more dynamic balance, so moving balance, because when you look at individuals in falls, the falls generally occur when people are moving, not stationary. If it's stationary, sometimes it's a fracture and then they fall, or it's just a lack of strength and endurance and they just get tired and they fall. Well, what about flexibility? So flexibility is important in that we need flexibility. We need we need joints to move if, if we actually want to move. And so... Um, 
uh, flexibility should be included in terms of making sure that I have proper range of motion of my joints so that I can then perform my physical activity or my just activities of daily living. You know, if I have cabinets, I need to put dishes away. I need to be able to get those dishes in those upper cabinets or lower cabinets. And so flexibility, doing some stretching, it certainly does help. We know that um, um, we used to think that flexibility was injury prevention and the research really doesn't quite bear that out. But we know that consistent um, interventions, stretching over time, can increase flexibility. And we want to make sure that our, our joints do have full range of motion. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with exercise physiologist Dr. Carol Sames about strength training. Tell me what fitness is actually supposed to do for us and, and what's, what it has been proven to be able to do for us. The big one, first of all, is a reduction in the risk for cardiovascular disease. And that certainly is very strong research. Um, and the reason we talk about cardiovascular disease is it is the number one killer of Americans, uh, adult Americans. And so not only does consistent uh, exercise reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease, so in terms of having a heart attack, stroke, but if I have had a heart attack or I have some type of cardiovascular disease, it reduces the risk of another event, and that's called secondary prevention, and that's incredibly powerful. We know that it can reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes. We know that physical activity um, is a hallmark in um, maintaining appropriate blood sugar levels. Um, it reduces the risk of, of weight gain that we can see as we get older when we start to become less active. Reduces the risk of falls. Um, physical activity is, is bone loading, so it can reduce the risk for osteoporosis. Um, mild to moderate depression, help with sleep. Um, give us the strength, if we go back to strength training again, to be able to perform the activities that, that we do every day. So the, the list is very long. Certain types of cancer, um, breast and colon, um, were the original, and now we have additional um, reduction in risk of cancers. Um, quality of life, we can get into those things that we are more gray. So this whole idea of what is quality of life, the ability to do the, the activities that I want to do, um, self-esteem, we can you know get into those what we would call, we have these physiological outcomes, but then we get into all of these behavioral outcomes. Um, and so um, I think quality of life is just something that's so um, overlooked, but so important because it really does um, it give me a sense of, I can accomplish this, I feel better. Reduction in fatigue, uh, that's huge, um, especially if we're talking about chronic diseases. So uh, when we get into the chronic disease family, um, we certainly know that physical activity, again, is important. This is not just for individuals who are apparently healthy. This is for everyone because we know that it can help um, in terms of just we, we need to move. And sometimes we'll have people that have osteoarthritis come to us and say, oh, it hurts to move. But we try to say it, it will hurt more to not move because at some point then you're not going to be able to move. Everything that you described, if you put that all in a pill, you'd be able to make millions selling that oh, yes. pill, right? Yes. I mean, it's pretty amazing all the things that exercise can do. But are there risks, too, especially for older people? Um, so if we think about um, cardiovascular disease, the risk for all of us increases as we get older. There's more prevalence of cardiovascular disease as we age. So the answer is, if we're looking at older adults and they're prevalence of cardiovascular disease is higher, then there is a slight increase in terms of risk. But the risk is far greater to not be active. And so if we look at the nurse's health study and the physician's health study, um, for men, there uh, was a sudden cardiac death every 1.5 million episodes mm. of vigorous activity. So not moderate, but vigorous. And for women, every 36.5 million hours of moderate to vigorous physical activity. So the risk is low. And again, I really want to emphasize that the risk is far greater to not be to active. To not be active. Absolutely. Now, what about with seniors um, in, in mind, the uh, idea of warming up and cooling down? Is that more important for older people than for younger? Well, I think when you're younger, you certainly can, you can get away with a lot 
Um, <laughs> it's a little bit easier. In terms of warm-up, warm-up is important because if I just get up and go, first of all, my heart rate isn't increased, my blood pressure isn't increased, I don't have blood flow to the working muscles. And so if you just get up and go and you don't have blood flow in those areas, you have that heavy, like, I feel terrible feeling. But if I do a warm-up, maybe if I'm walking, I just start out walking slow. And that's my warm-up. I get blood flow to the working muscles. I get my heart rate up. I get my blood pressure up. You know, we, we need to have proper circulation because we need to have oxygen being delivered to the working muscles. And so warm-up really prepares us for exercise. The person who hasn't been very active and now they find themselves a senior citizen um, do they need to talk to their physician before they embark on a new regimen? If they have a chronic disease, it's always good to have that conversation at yearly checkup. You know, this is what I want to do. Um, and for some individuals, you know, either um, seeing an exercise physiologist or a physical therapist can, can help set up a program for them and, you know, kind of give them confidence that what they're doing is, is appropriate. Um, really, the, the guidelines for, for older adults um, are to start slow and lower intensity. Um, you know, we don't magically become fit because there doesn't exist that pill that you were previously mentioning. And so really what, what increases fitness, what increase, increases strength is consistency. So I just want to start out slow. If I've been inactive, I don't want to just say, I'm going to go for an hour walk. You're going to be not only fatigued, but incredibly sore 24 to 48 hours later. And then you're going to say, wow, this isn't worth it. But if I start slow, if I, if I start with five or five minute increments, where, where can I start? And I just start there and I start to increase, or maybe I do multiple few minutes during the day. Um, that's, that's really the key to consistency because after six to eight weeks, if you are consistent, you will feel better. I mean, it's, I could say a money-back guarantee, but it's physiology. Um, and so it's really important for people to understand that consistency is the key and to start slower and lower intensity. This has been great information. Thank you to Dr. Carol Sames. She's an associate professor in the College of Health Professions and the director of the Vitality Fitness Program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next... How kids keep from falling behind in school when they are hospitalized. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When a child has to be hospitalized, it can disrupt the normal pattern of schooling. So Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital has a hospital school program that can provide kids with a familiar routine and help keep them from falling behind. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is the full-time teacher from the hospital school, Mary Ellen Michalinko. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So you're the teacher, essentially, for a one-room schoolhouse inside the hospital. Yes, I am. How many students do you have? On any given day, there can be as many as probably 12. And some of those children we see in the schoolroom and some of those children we need to see bedside, depending on their diagnosis. Okay. And what grade levels are we talking about? I work with all grade levels, K through 12. Uh, and they do their schoolwork from their home school. So ideally, the schoolwork is sent through either the parents or the child or through technology to me, and we try and do the schoolwork that they have for that day. And then it also helps when they re-enter back into school that they don't fall, far, fall too far behind. So from kindergartners, first graders, all the way up to seniors in high school? Correct. Wow. Correct. And children come into the schoolroom at, at different times. For instance, early in the morning, we usually have our elementary school children who are up and they want to get up and out of the room and come in. And then in the afternoon, we have to poke sometimes to get some of our high school children to come in. Okay, so it's kind of staggered. Yeah. Oh, and you talked about what the schoolroom looks like. Um, it's, it's very large. In the planning many years ago, we made it so in the back, there are four workstations along with two tables and also an elementary school table. And we also have a smart board. And one of, 
our technological advances was a Tanberg unit that we can actually connect right into the school in our online learning program. So the child can connect to the classroom real time of what they're doing for that day. So like FaceTiming it? It's kind of like FaceTime, but it's more it, it it's more like television. Huh. It's what the hospital uses when they do any of their conferences. So we have it in the schoolroom, and then the school will also get the technology. If they don't have the technology, BOCES supplies the technology to the school. So this would be good if a student, if there was a guest speaker in their at their school, that they wanted to be a part of that. It can also, it has been used for that before. It has been used for pep rallies. But ideally it's used for, for instance, if they have a math class at 745 in the morning, we connect directly to their math class. Oh. And that teacher will send the work in the morning. So I have that. They're sitting in the in the schoolroom. They can connect right to their school program. Uh, we, we call it staying connected is good medicine. And in 1999, was it 99, we won an award down in oh, Washington, cool. D.C. Neat. for that. Well, so you follow the regular school calendar? Yes, we do. Yep. So, so we, September to June? September to June, and one of the goals eventually is to do a summer bridge program or some sort of a summer school program that we can help reinforce work for children during the summer. Now, what about there are um, certain state testing dates? Yes. There so, are certain testing dates for elementary school children and also for high school school children. Most importantly are the New York State Regents exams that children have to take in June. They have to take it on that day at that time. So any of the children who are here in the hospital, they can take it with us. Last year, I believe we administered almost 12. That had the, the, Yes, yeah. that had okay. these exams. And um, if they don't take it now, they have to take them in June. And most of the time... The children, or if they don't take it in June. Uh, excuse they have me, to take they have to take it in August. And so who wants to be... Nobody wants to be there. Right. Okay. <laughs> they are... And... and even some children who come into the emergency department, and if they have an exam that day, we were able to get them so they're able to take the test. So how do you as a teacher, though, you're juggling K through 12, all these different grades, but also all these different school districts, right? Because there's student, or patients here from the whole region or central New York, right? Correct, correct. We have, just like in the hospital when patients come, we have patients coming down from Binghamton, Watkins Glen, all the way up to Messina. Technology is amazing and also phone calls. And I've been here over 20 years. I've gotten to know a lot of the guidance counselors, many of the schools. I also get phone calls now from guidance counselors who know the children are here who will call me and say, somebody such and such is here, we're sending you the work. Now what about children with special needs? We work with children with special needs also. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now the schoolwork that the student gets from their school, do they turn it into you, and do you do the, do you grade the schoolwork, or does no, it? I send everything back to the school. Okay. So ideally, we get the schoolwork, and I will once they're finished, I'll scan it to the uh, to the teacher who it needs to go to. Now you told us what the schoolroom looks like. Um, is there a dress code? No. <laughs> Sometimes we need a warm blanket because okay. it gets a little chilly. We're in the main hallway on the eleventh floor. So we have heated blankets that the children can put on. And what about snow days? We don't have snow days. <laughs> as long as I can get here, I'm usually As long here. as you can get here. Mm-hmm. Um, so now this assumes students can come to the classroom. Mm-hmm. There, there's some that are immobile or Correct. Um, infectious maybe? Or Correct. There's yep. reasons they wouldn't be able to gather. So we will go bedside. And as our census gets high, I have um, assistant teachers who will come in, and then we will... We sit in the morning, we conference, and then we spread out. And we go bedside. We'll also go to different clinics. When children are in clinics, um, sometimes some of them are here Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So they'll miss a whole day of school Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So we also go to those clinics. Now, does this count as attendance for them back at their school district? It certainly does. It counts as a day in school. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And is there any cost for the patient to there attend There is not. No. Okay. No. It's just part of their it's hospitalization. Correct. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Mary Ellen Michaelinko. She's the school teacher at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital School. So what are your goals as a teacher in the hospital school? My goal, I'm an OCMBOSIS teacher positioned here full-time. And I, I've been here for over 20 years, and I also belong to a national organization of hospital school teachers. 
Um, I was a treasurer for many years. And what this allows me to do is we, we interact with teachers all over the country. I have been to children's hospitals from here to California, Denver, Florida, and I meet every year with other teachers. And it just helps us to, it gives different ideas. We, we, are, have meet, we have speakers who come in and talk to us. We share our ideas. So for instance, our Staying Connected program from 15 years ago, I was able to share that. And right now, technologies, it's so much easier to do. But at that point, it was pretty state-of-the-art. So this is, it's pretty common for children's hospitals to have schoolrooms with, within them. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I wanted to talk to you about why the program is so important, but it, it seems pretty obvious, you know, you don't want children to fall, fall behind and then they're back at school and they're trying to play catch up. That's not good for School is the normality of children. And a lot of times when they come into the schoolroom, they find a little comfort. It looks like a schoolroom. It has all the, all the books around. We have reading books. We have iPads. But they also have their own schoolwork. And I think when they see that, they're able to say, okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to get back to school soon. And they'll do it. Um, some of the children here are too, too sick to be worried with school, right? They, they are. They are. We also we take that into account. But a lot of times we can read to the children a book that they may be reading in school. Or we have lots of books to read to them. And it gives the parents a little time to go and take a little break for a minute. Right. Mm-hmm. So what do you do to inspire kids who um, are here and would rather not do their schoolwork? They'd rather watch TV or play video games. Sometimes we have to have a schedule for children, and we have to have a behavioral plan. And so part of that behavioral plan with the rewards that may come after that is you have to go to school. You have to walk around, you have to drink, you have to eat, and you also have to go to school. These are things that children do normally, and we want them to realize that they have to do that here in school. And I also have a big reward bucket. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so children know when they come, they can hit the reward bucket as they go out the door. <laughs> well, what advice do you have for parents? Um, is there anything that they can do to make the hospital stay a little more smoothly in terms of making sure school is part of it? Parents have a lot to worry about when they're here. And yes, there is. They can always make sure they can have their children's schoolwork. Um, but we try and get between just us and the school, the parents have enough to worry medically. So my goal is to to do the schoolwork with the children and not have the parents worry that this has to come here. I have to go home and get this, or I have to have someone bring this to me. So we try and let the parents realize that they wouldn't do this in their normal school or their home school, so they don't have to do that here. And as for any parent, we, of course, encourage reading with the children if they want to do flashcards, anything that a parent would like to do to enhance what that child would do normally at home, we have for them. But we try and do the school ourselves. And in the beginning of the school year, my schoolroom turns into a little, they can bring in their list through all the donations that we get. They can bring in their list and pick out all the materials that they would need for their children and also for the child in the hospital and their children at home. Trying to alleviate some of that worry is what our goal is. I'm imagining that some parents are very surprised to find that this is a service that's offered here. Unless you've had a child who's been ill, you wouldn't know that this exists, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And many times I say to them, well, that's good. I'm glad you didn't know about us. But now that you do, this is what we do. And it takes away, it takes one less thing off their plate that they need to worry about. And um, especially for our high school children, in the beginning, they go, oh, I don't want to go to school, but really, they, they do. They know what they have to finish. We have a couple of 12th graders. We will be working on their essays for college. They have certain goals that they have to meet, and we try and meet all those goals. And they probably make new friends with the classmate, the hospital classmates, right? Ideally, that would be a good, but we have to worry so much about infectious disease. So some of the children, they, they have to be in by themselves or separate, and they, they do make friends. I'm not saying that they don't. More um, more times, though, we have to really be up on what everybody's diagnosis is. Why did you become a teacher? It's a very long story. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom. I was a teacher and then a stay-at-home mom, and one of my um, friend's daughters got ill, and I started to work with her, and I was coming up here in the hospital, and the teacher retired, and so I was able to get the job. 
Neat. Mm-hmm. Now, is there additional training if you're going to be a teacher in a hospital as opposed to in a, in a regular school district? I have to go through all the everything that's required in OCMBOCES I have to do. And then I also have to do everything that's required in the hospital, all our medical, all our um, yearly information that we have to do. I have to do that also. The training that I have gotten has been through my National Organization of Hospital School Teachers. Okay. So that we have been developing um, hospital school protocol over the past 20 years, and we have actually come out with what is needed for hospital school teaching, what would be best to help somebody advance. Um, I go to a lot of conferences and um, other information here in the hospital. Now, you've been at this so long, and some patients have recurring health needs where they're in the hospital repeatedly over over the years. Mm -hmm. Are there patients that you've seen from kindergarten that have gone through? I have seen patients that I held as little babies because I like to hold little babies. And uh, yes, and I have seen them graduate, and I have seen some go to college, and I have seen some very successful ones. It's got to be comforting to them and their family to come back and have the same teacher. It, it is. Right? It's nice to see some of the children and even some who of you have interviewed. Well, thank you so much. Uh, my guest has been Mary Ellen Michalinko. She's the school teacher at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, fitness and motivation with Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With me in the studio today is a special guest from our Syracuse University neighbor, head football coach Dino Babers. He has some advice for making fitness part of everyday life and for motivating young people today. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Amber. Thank you. (laughs) Let's start with, uh, is it true that you've wanted to be a football coach since you were six years old? You know, it is. I I was always uh, asking people what I should be when I grow up. And and uh, during a quiet moment, the word coach came to me. And uh, I've been striving to try to be a coach ever since. At the time, I was a short, fat mama's boy that never left the house and really didn't play a sport. You didn't play football? I really, well, at the time, I did not. I had an older brother, a younger brother, three other sisters in my family. And my dad and my brother played football at the time, but I did not. I was just, stay, I would stay in the house and just watch TV. So uh, when I, decided that I wanted to be a coach. I really didn't know what sport I was supposed to be a coach in. I just knew that I was supposed to be a coach. And then uh, when my older brother found out that that's what I wanted to be, he started beating me up and forcing me to go outside and and play football with him. Because he said, if you're gonna be a coach, you gotta learn a sport. I said, but I don't know if that's the sport I'm supposed to learn. But he just wanted me to get me out of the house because I was a mama's boy and I was gaining weight. So he would get me out there and get me playing with the other guys, and eventually uh, football won me over over compared to basketball and track and all those other sports. Did you try those other sports? I sure did. did? I, did. I was a basketball player, ran track, played football. I tried to do a lot of everything so I could just get to uh, get around other coaches to learn their styles, to learn their techniques, to see uh, the good and the bad, to see what I could take with me and what I wanted to leave behind. That's interesting that you had a focus from a young age on what you ultimately wanted to do, and you did things to get you to that place. Um, what did you like about football? I thought it was fair. You know, I, I grew up in the 60s and uh, grew up on military bases all around the country. I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. I started uh, kindergarten, first grade in Norfolk, Virginia graduated high school from San Diego, California, 
and I lived everywhere in between. And the one thing when you're moving from north to south, east to west during those times is that you realize everything wasn't always fair. And so what? What are you going to do about it now? And I thought that uh, not only football, but I thought that uh, competitions and sports was at least fair. You at least had a chance. Even if the officials were a little biased, at least you had a chance to overcome it. So I thought it was the, the most fairest thing that you could do, and that's what drew me to it, drew me towards it. Neat. Well, what do you think um, the players that you have on the SU football team, what would they say about you? How would they describe you as a coach, do you think? You know, I, that's a question that I, I, I'll, I'm going to backpedal away from. I think you need to ask them, and obviously they're not here. I don't know how people perceive me, and I'm not sure it matters that much to me. I have, there's certain things that I want to get done. There's certain things I think that young people need to do. Uh, my dad was military. I was raised in a military fashion, and I think that all young people in their quiet way, in their hipster way, the millennial way, I think they all want discipline. But you just can't put it on on their on their plate and say this is discipline. Eat it. It's like peas, you know. It's like spinach. You know, if you tell them it's good for you, they don't want to eat it. And what you got to do is you got to find a way to put some sugar in it, mix it up in some potatoes, some kind of way for that broccoli to go down. And I think if you can find a way to let them swallow it, taste it, savor it, I think they'd all walk away with it, and they'd all say that they'd want some of that discipline. And that's what I try to do with young people on my football team and young people that I meet in my life. So discipline is, is part of it. But let's also talk about, um, do, do you have sort of a secret or a formula for instilling, you know, heart and determination and focus in, in athletes? And um... You know, I think everybody's hot button is different. You know, like it's like marriage. Everybody, every partner knows who the other partner's hot button, even though they, we both push it too much. You know, I think when it comes to young people, um, my biggest thing is I just don't want to settle. And uh, I don't want to be average. And if you're around me, you you need to honor that code that you're not going to be average and you're not going to settle. That means you're not going to settle spiritually. You're not going to settle physically. You're not going to settle mentally. And you're always striving to be a better you. And as long as you wake up every morning with those goals, I think that we can hang out with each other. If you're not like that, you're going to find me very difficult to deal with. Well, that also, as you were saying that, it, it sounds like that would work on the football field, but it would work I don't know, in a classroom or, or on a job site as well, right? Absolutely. I, I, think, I think that coaches are teachers, except for one I'm a teacher by trade, so if I wasn't a coach, I'd be a teacher. My degrees are in teaching, so the teachers may get mad at what I'm about to say here. But I think that the only difference between coaches and teachers is that coaches aren't allowed to fail anybody. Hmm. A teacher, you can fail someone. There's a bell curve. Somebody's going to get an A and somebody's going to get an F. Somebody's going to get a B and somebody's going to get a D. In coaching, you, everybody has to get an A or everybody has to get a B. Because if there's somebody's going to get an F or a D, that probably means if you keep that up that you're going to get fired and you're going to lose your job. Teachers have tenure. Coaches have contracts where they can get bought out and sent down the road. So your, uh, your enthusiasm or the way you go into something is you can't fail. Everyone has to pass. And uh, there's just a more sense of urgency of making sure that everyone gets the knowledge that they need to have an opportunity to be successful. So you can't give up on anyone? No, not at all. Right. So do you have some athletes where you've got to um, work a little harder to, to build them up, to give them confidence? Do you have do you see confidence as being an issue with some? I, I think that uh, sometimes you've got you to give them a confidence pill. There's no doubt about it. And then sometimes, you know, their egos are such that you have to take away their capital E and make it a small e because everyone's allowed to have an ego but you can't have a billboard type ego in the room when you're doing something that's done in a selfless manner with a, in a team concept 
So I think there's times where you need to give some athletes more confidence and there's some times when you need them to tone it down a little bit so the team aspect can come into play. When you're um, recruiting athletes, I imagine you look at talent and physical skill. And what else do you look for in, in the person, sort of? How do you pick someone who's going to be successful? I think it, what we're doing right now, you need to get into conversations with them about uh, athletics. You need to get into conversations with them about academics. Kind of how everybody wasn't privy to how we started our conversation this morning. But I think you need to learn something about them. You need to learn something about their past. Uh, whether they have came from a single parent home or two parent home or no parent home, and then find out what how much drive they have in them and how much do they want to be successful, how important it is to them. Because I found out if you give somebody something that they really really want, they'll normally do anything and everything in their off time to achieve it. And what you want to is you want a team full of achievers, and then you want a team full of people who when people tell them no they don't even hear that, that that no is for somebody else. That's not for me. You just told me, you didn't say no, you just said go, because that's what that word means to me. Neat. Well, as you mentioned, your undergrad, your master's degrees, your background is in education. Did um, part of your training, did you take courses in, and did you study how to motivate athletes, or is this something it sort of comes natural for you. Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I took every psychology class I could take. Uh, I wanted to be with as many coaches. I said before, I played a lot of sports. I wanted to be with a lot of coaches. Uh, when I played collegiately uh, at the University of Hawaii, I had four. I played four different positions, uh, and because I wanted to be coached by as many coaches as possible, and coach and being coached by those coaches, some coaches were better than others. And uh, it's one of the things that I tell my players all the time. I said, all, you treat all your players the same, but all your players aren't the same. Some are better than others. It doesn't mean you, tr you treat them the same, but there's no doubt that some are better than others. Some coaches are better than others, you know. And I'll take it to another step. You know, even though everybody passed pass the, uh, the, uh, the test to become a doctor, all doctors aren't the same. All teachers aren't the same. All coaches aren't the same. All financial advisors aren't the same. They're all qualified, but they're not the same. Some are better than others. And if you do your homework and you do your research, you'll really find out who's really at the top and who's just surviving. Oh, interesting. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dino Babers, the head football coach for Syracuse University, about making fitness part of everyday life and how to motivate young people today. Um, at your introductory press conference when you came to SU in 2015, you asked everyone to close their eyes and envision a team that could win and bring a den to the Carrier Dome. Do you believe in sports psychology and the idea of visualization um, being a helpful tool? I do. I think if you can see it, you can achieve it. And uh, I remember being in that room and asking everybody to close, close their eyes. And I remember how long it took for everyone to close their eyes. And it brings me back to sometimes you, you're speaking and people hear you. And, but what I need to do is I need to be speaking and people listening to me. Because just because they hear you doesn't mean they're listening to you. And, uh, and asking those reporters and those media people to, to envision what I wanted and to ask them to close their eyes. Or, I'm like, I asked you guys to close your eyes, and I'm not going to go further until all of you close your eyes. And all the ones out there listening, they know, listening, they know who I'm referring to. And when they did that, then I could start the vision. I really believe if you can visualize it, you can achieve it. And you have to see it done if you really want to have all your energy, all your focus all your faith heading in the right direction. And I think there's nothing bigger than sports visualization and visualization in all aspects of your life. I've seen and read about um, Olympic athletes using visualization. It seems to be a little more common than people might realize with athletes. I think it's almost a lost art. I really do. And, and it shouldn't be exclusive to just athletics. I mean, if you're visualizing Mr. Wright and you visualize, visualize him enough, you'll know what he, what he looks like when he steps into your <laughs> life, him or her. Good point.
Anxiety has overtaken depression as the number one reason college students seek counseling services over the last decade. Um, record numbers of students are feeling overwhelmed, and hospitalizations for teen suicide attempts has doubled in the last 10 years. What advice do you have for America's youth to get through what some would describe as tough times? You know, when you talk about tough times, when you talk about anxiety, uh, depression, you know, I, I, it makes me think about the things that we're afraid of, okay? And the way to become unafraid of a topic or an object is to become familiar with it. And what I mean by that is if you have test anxieties, well, you need to prepare more. And some people I've studied, studied, and all I do is get... It just, you know, I get more depressed, more anxiety. I, I, I don't buy that. I think practice does not make perfect. That, that is not true. You can practice and you cannot, and not come to perfection. But perfect practice makes perfect. And I think when you're preparing in the right way and you're coming to the conclusion of the correct answer all the time. I'm talking about academics right now. I'm not talking about sports. That you gain so much confidence that when you go into a test situation that there really is no anxiety. You know, I, uh, I was an education major. I got education degrees and I really didn't like school. Hmm. Graduated high school on the honor roll and I really didn't like school graduated college with honors, and I really didn't like school. Went and got a master's degree, and I really didn't like school. Got two degrees to teach, become an educator. And technically, I really don't like school. Never missed a day. Those little presidential patches you used to get for going to school all the time and being physical and doing the push-ups and the chin-ups, always got a patch. And what I'm referring to is, even though it wasn't my favorite thing to do, if I was going to go, I was going to do my best. If I was going to go, I was going to sit in the front of the room. If I was going to go and you're going to give me a grade, then I'm going to try my best to get an A. And for me to get an A, I had to be prepared. Um... I just think it carries over in everything. People, I, I know people who have test anxieties. They can, they get straight A's and they come to the exam and they bomb. And they go to the professor, I have stress anxieties, da 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 da. Look at my homework, look at this, but I just, I sit down with other people in a testing room and I have anxiety about it. It's a real thing, I get it, sure. I'm not making fun of it. But I just feel that if, you, if you're prepared and you know all that information, there shouldn't be any anxiety. If someone can ask you a question and you know the answer and you know it so well, there shouldn't be any anxiety in spitting that answer out, whether it's verbally or, so on, or whether it's on a piece of paper. So the will to prepare doesn't matter. Okay? It's, it's the will to prepare correctly that matters in all aspects. Well, thank you so much. This has been nice talking to you. My guest has been Syracuse University head football coach, Dino Babers. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. One of the defining moments of life comes when adult children have to lose a parent. Jessica Tyner Mehta is a poet and novelist whose poem, My Mother's Remains, shows us the dramatic complexity that is often part of a mother-child relationship. My Mother's Remains. Do you want to go to the Bahamas? I opened my mother's ashes and was taken by the color. Somehow, I thought she'd be slate, 
but she was like Florida, coarse and tawny. What remains is heavier than you'd think, full of bones and grit. The weight tugs you down. As I spooned her into the little glass jar, I remembered being six, my aunt packed tight in a cardboard urn while the lot of us boarded a shaky propeller plane. The pilot never said to hold it low, let the wind lap what's left. She swarmed us like wild things, left a thick coating, and we licked her chars from philtrums. Brackish and dry, she shot to our innards, became a burrowing, permanent part of us all. I thought, I don't want my mother to stay, haunt my organs, blow like smoke through dreams. How long can someone stick to the familiar, cling scared to all we hate? Like the gold beggar children in Mexico, I brushed her from my skirt and held my breath against her dust. Maybe if I sprinkle her in the turquoise of the tropics, salt the rim a little more, she'll finally, after so, so many years, release those bitten nails and let me go. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new edition of The Healing Muse. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. <laughs>